this is Carlo and welcome to episode 25 of Thieves Monthly Movie Loot. I hope all of you are doing great. We're in the middle of November and today we're going to talk about the first loot of films I've seen during the month. So far I've seen a total of 9 films, so let's get on with it. A freebie. My name is Sarah Connor. August 29, 1997. It was supposed to be Judgment Day. But I changed the future. Saved three billion lives. Enough of a resume for you? No. You may have changed the future, but you didn't change our fate. I started the month early with a freebie. My wife and I were curious to check out Terminator Dark Fate. So considering the roller coaster that this franchise has been and keeping our expectations in check, we jump right into it. Say what you will about the Terminator franchise, but their films have not been devoid of risks or bold choices, be it because of real creative intentions or just as a result of being cornered by the premise and the story. Terminator Dark Fate is no exception, as it starts with a literal and figurative bang. The film follows Grace, played by Mackenzie Davis, an enhanced human sent back in time to protect Danny, played by Natalia Reyes, a young woman that might have an impact in the future from a new Terminator, played by Gabriel Luna. In comes Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton, who offers to help Grace and Danny fight the bad guy. I might be the only one on the face of the earth, but I'm a huge, huge fan of Terminator 3. I think that, despite some tonal dissonance and a somewhat weakly conceived villain, it manages to extend and expand the themes of the first two and should have successfully closed that chapter in the end perhaps opening the possibilities for films set in the dystopian future instead. It's a shame that the studio ping-pong that has ensued with each creative team that takes it going bankrupt, forcing them to lose the rights, hasn't allowed for the story to continue in a cohesive and coherent way. Despite what I consider to be risky and bold choices, mostly regarding the character of John Connor, the franchise seems to be trapped in a loop of nostalgia and innovation, with the end results being more messy than they are effective. That's why I approached this with very low expectations. I really wasn't expecting much more than kick-ass action, and for the most part, it delivered. I thought the action in the first half was pretty much excellent, starting with a fight in an auto factory and followed by a highway chase. Director Tim Miller handled the camera pretty well, with lots of fluid, continuous shots, as opposed to shaky camera and excessive frenetic cuts, However, the action sequences did become more chaotic, exaggerated, and CGI-esque as the film continued, with a lengthy fight in a plane being particularly overlong and weak. Also, the moment the script felt the need to shove Arnold back in, it pretty much lost me in terms of its story. The justification for his character to still be in it, and the logistics of it, and how he fits in the story, just doesn't work. Other than that, the script also tries to juggle the themes of fate and free will, nature and nurture, and overall purpose, but it doesn't fully succeed either. The saving graces are, like I said, the action and some solid performances from most of the cast. Unfortunately, with yet another film bombing and another studio being in jeopardy because of it, the fate of this franchise seems to be dark indeed. 
Any film that starts with the letters U or V. For this category, I saw 1967's Buy from the Soviet Union, based in a Ukrainian folktale. This is apparently the first horror film released in the USSR. The film follows Koma Brutus, played by Leonid Kurablyov, a student monk that is put under the spell of a witch, only to find himself tasked later to lead a three-night vigil over her seemingly dead body. Of course, this opens the door for him to be a subject to all kinds of hallucinations, visions, hauntings, and apparitions caused by the witch. I found this to be more interesting than it was good, but it was still effectively creepy, eerie, and haunting, particularly in its last act. What sorta didn't work with me was the way it mixed comedy and horror. Unsurprisingly, this film was a huge inspiration for Sam Raimi in creating The Evil Dead, which are two films that I have similar issues with. But anyway, that foundation can be easily seen here. Vi has more or less of a similar premise to Evil Dead, a man trapped in an enclosed space with an evil spirit, and it has a lot of similar beats to Raimi's films. Despite my reserves with its tone, where the film succeeds is in creating a haunting ambience and a weirdly unsettling vibe, especially during that last act, which I mentioned before. The special effects here were impressive, and the performance from Natalia Varley as the witch was pretty good. Bai is currently available on Tubi and Shutter, so even if I didn't love it, I think it's definitely worth a watch. A freebie for the kids. Hold on, it's not that easy. You've got to earn your mark by doing something big for something bigger than yourself. Someday you'll all make your mark, and I can't wait to see it. For the next film, I went with another freebie, this time with the kids. My wife had mentioned The Good Dinosaur to me several times, so when she decided to put it for the kids, I jumped in for the ride. Released by Pixar, the film is set in an alternate timeline where the asteroid didn't hit Earth, so dinosaurs didn't become extinct. It follows a young dinosaur, an apatosaurus called Arlo, that gets lost in the wilderness and befriends a young cave boy in the process. This was a pretty good choice for the kids, but I really enjoyed it as well. The animation was pretty good, and the story was very simple and charming. I saw it dubbed in Spanish, but the dubbing was pretty good. If anything, I think that the climax needed a bit more work, but that's more of a nitpick. Like many other Pixar films, the way their stories handle the emotional moments is excellent, and this is no exception. The moment where both Arlo and Spot, the cave boy, share the stories about their families put a lump on my throat. Apparently this film bombed at the box office, which I really don't understand, but if you have kids or just want to see a charming film, give this a chance. A film about Mars. 
But nobody's getting anywhere out there. Nobody can locate anything. Anybody. The Martians. We've got to start the... Invaders from Mars. Capturing humans at will for their own sinister purposes. Turning them into diabolical instruments of destruction. Red Planet Day is on November 28th, so I was looking for a film set on Mars or about Mars. I really was in the mood for some 50s or 60s sci-fi and found several options available in the streaming services that I have. I had Angry Red Planet from 1959, Robinson Crusoe on Mars from 1964, and Invaders from Mars from 1953. I made a Twitter poll and the latter one. So Invaders from Mars follows David, played by Jimmy Hunt, a kid that witnesses a Martian saucer landing near his house, which results in several residents, including his parents, being over taken by the aliens. Coincidentally, the film was directed by William Cameron Menzies, who also directed 1936 Things to Come, which I saw last month. Embedders from Mars is part of the whole 50s film craze about the space race and the Cold War. It is told from the point of view of the kid, but it still manages to create a good sense of dread and uncertainty about the intentions of the characters and their real nature, you know, who has or hasn't been taken over. Also, the overall direction, the camera placement, the framing is pretty good. Unfortunately, most of it is wasted as it has its characters going in circles for most of its duration without really showing anything. Sure, the film is mostly breezy and short, but even so, it takes too long to get things going and when it does, it's very schlocky. Apparently, this is a result of the film being rushed into production because the studio wanted to beat George Pal's War of the Worlds into theaters. I don't mind low production values, but here you can see how the director wastes time with tons of stock footage about tanks and the military getting ready for an attack, as well as some sequences of the human characters running around the alien caves trying to escape, which are apparently put on loop. The look of the alien thugs is a mixture of laughable and creepy, but the whole look and feel of the spaceship is pretty good. Invaders from Mars is not great, but it's a fun and light film. A thriller. When I first met my mother, she couldn't pronounce my name. My father suggested that they rename me. They picked loose, which means light. If you Googled model student, Luce Edgar's picture would come up on the computer. Given Luce's background, you and Peter must have faced quite a few challenges. The language barrier, the culture shock. I mean, you don't pull a kid out of a war zone and have him turn out like Luce without a lot of help. Which is why this is so difficult. Difficult? For this category, I settled on 2019's Loose, directed by Julius Ona. I want to thank Jane Johans at Film Intuition for this recommendation. She mentioned it on her podcast, Watch With Jen, a while ago, and I knew I wanted to see it. So, Jen, I owe you one. The film follows the titular character, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., a high school senior that was adopted from a war-torn country in Africa by Amy and Peter, played by Naomi Watts and Tim Roth, only to become a stellar role model and student. But when his teacher, played by Octavia Spencer, starts raising suspicions about Luce's behavior and inclinations, everything starts to crumble around them. 
This was an extremely well-made and thought-provoking film. I thought it was captivating and fascinating all around, not necessarily because of directing, even though it is very well directed, but mostly because of a rich script and captivating performances by everybody. Director Ona avoids simple resolutions and explanations and chooses to just throw the ball at us and let us decide what we think, and it works perfect. The way it addresses racial stereotypes, code switching, tokenism, or simply how we project ourselves to others is superb. I've read a lot of polarizing reactions about this film, many of which complain about how the film doesn't resolve anything in the end, but I think the film does enough in raising the questions it raises and letting us make our minds about the characters and about the events. I don't want to spoil anything, but the way the film handles these issues about identity was on point. Someone leading a so-called double life, not being sure which one is the quote-unquote right one. Every character in the film is struggling in some way with how they present themselves to others or are perceived by others. Obviously from the main character, but down to his parents, his friends, his teacher, and so on. It's been a week since I saw it and I still haven't been able to take it off my mind. It's a great film, so check it out. A film with the number 11 in its title. In the chaos and confusion, several of the prisoners escaped. Before long, they met up with other American escapees and the group headed northward straight into the path of a rapidly advancing patrol from Gustav Niddle's 1st SS Reconnaissance Battalion. These soldiers would become known as the Wereth Eleven. For this category, I saw the Wereth Eleven, a documentary from 2011. I walked pretty much blind into this that I didn't even know it was a documentary. It follows the events surrounding the Titura group, a small group of African-American soldiers that were pursued, captured, and tortured by the SS during the Battle of the Bulge. The documentary is very short and mostly straightforward. The story and the information provided is pretty good and worth knowing is very mediocre. The way the director intersects the interviews and the dramatization and how he unfolds the facts of the story is very clumsy, which unfortunately ends up neutering most of the emotional impact it could have. If you're a World War II buff like me, there might be something there for you, but for everybody else, don't bother. A film about the occult. Become something remarkable. They did killings and sacrifices. They made people change. Nothing else matters now. It is not real. It's not real. It's not real. This isn't the end. November 18 will be Occult Day, so I wanted to see a film about the occult. Somewhere, someplace, I read about a 2016 film called The Void, and what a pleasant surprise it was. 
I'll start by saying that if you haven't seen it, I suggest walking in as blind as possible. So pause this podcast and check it out. It's on Tubi, Shutter, and Popcorn Flicks. To try to encapsulate what it's about or how the events unfold would be tough without revealing key plot points. But overall, it follows a small town sheriff played by Adam Poole that seeks refuge in a hospital with a group of people as they try to deal with mysterious hooded cultists as well as deadly creatures. Seriously, the film wastes no time in getting things going and rarely lets go. It is very intense with some great practical special effects. Most of the performances are pretty good, and the whole mystery surrounding everything that happens just results in an effectively creepy and eerie ambience. Maybe it tries to bite more than it can chew, and on hindsight, I think many of the events probably doesn't make much sense, but I love the whole look and feel of it, and I think that directors Jeremy Gillespie and Steven Kostanke succeeded in creating the perfect atmosphere for it. Overall, I loved it. A film with the words, Black, or, Friday, in its title. Time's Diana. Yeah. Hey, yeah, we're up to 3 a.m. like always. Look, you've got to call the police. There's a payphone in back. But it's broke. Look, you don't understand. There is a maniac trying to kill us. Welcome to New York. Black Friday will be near the end of the month, so I wanted to see something with the words Black or Friday in its title. Coincidentally, it was Friday the 13th last week, so I thought it was a perfect moment to continue my slow rewatch of the Friday the 13th franchise by rewatching Friday the 13th Part 8. Jason takes a cruise to Manhattan where he only stays for 30 minutes. Back in March, in episode 6 of my podcast, I talked a bit about my history with this franchise when I rewatched Part 7, The New Blood. But essentially, one of my older brothers was a huge fan of 80s horror films and slashers, so I ended up watching most of the Fridays, the Halloweens, and the Nightmares before I was 10 years old. And that's why I have a soft spot for it, flaws and all. That said, there's little that could have saved this train wreck. I remember I saw this one in theaters back in the day, and even though I hadn't seen it since, I always remember it being pretty shitty, and boy was a ride. Thin story, bad characters, worse dialogue, boring kills, little gore, weak humor, and Jason's barely in Manhattan for half an hour. There's some nonsensical attempts to tie the main character to a young Jason that don't really work and are ultimately irrelevant. From the start, the film hammers down the theme that New York is a cesspool of decadence and rottenness. If anything, the film succeeds in emulating that by being so rotten. Unless you're a fan of the franchise, avoid it. A film from Martin Scorsese. Six too young. Six too young is here, baby. <laughs> and I'ma take care of you. Thursday started out with a bang. Heat, humidity, moonlight, all the elements in place for a long weekend. I was good at my job. There were periods when my hands moved with the speed and skill beyond me.
Tomorrow is Martin Scorsese's birthday, so I wanted to see something from him. Most of my internet friends know that as much as I respect Scorsese, I'm not a huge fan of his films, or at least I don't connect with them as much as others. So when I put this challenge upon me, I decided to walk a bit away from the beaten path and went with Bringing Out the Dead from 1999. I remember this film got some lukewarm or polarizing reactions back in the day, but in recent years I've read how its reception has changed a bit, so why not? The film follows Frank Pierce, played by Nicolas Cage, an overworked and overstressed paramedic in Manhattan. While working the night shift, he befriends the equally troubled daughter of a patient, played by Patricia Arquette, while he's also haunted by visions of those that he couldn't save. The film, which was written by Paul Schrader, has a lot of parallelisms with Taxi Driver and maybe even Schrader's first reform, as they all featured lonely men trying to cope with their deceased surroundings. Pierce is accompanied in his work by three separate partners, John Goodman, Bing Rames, and Tom Sizemore, and each of the chiefs he works delineate each of the film's acts. I'm still trying to figure out what to make of it, but if there's something evident in Schrader and Scorsese's films, is their exploration of decadence and morality, which is why I find it interesting how each of the partners' personalities cover every part of the spectrum, from Bing Rames being overly confident and religious, to Tom Sizemore being mostly crazy and violent, and John Goodman landing someplace in between. There are many definitive religious subtexts to everything that happens, from Arquette's character being called Mary to a miraculous birth later in the film. Like I said, I'm still puzzling over the film, but I'll just say that I really, really liked it and that I'm still thinking about it, which is always a good thing. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. So that's it for now. That was my first loot of films for November. I still have a bunch of categories to go through, which are a film from the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die list, whose ranking includes the number 11, a film from the 2000s, a film noir, a film about politics, a film from Palestine, a film considered one of the worst, a film from Puerto Rico, and a film about Thanksgiving. So if you have any recommendations for those, let me know. As usual, you can find me on Twitter at TIFCGT, T-H-I-E-F-C-G-T, or on Letterboxd as TIFF12. Hit me with your recommendations or just let me know what you think of the podcast. Now it's time for... Useless Movie Trivia. Did you know that the dog that played Toto in The Wizard of Oz got paid more money than the actors that played the Munchkins? Yep. The actors each received $50 a week, which apparently was acceptable at the time, but the dog earned $125 a week. So much for the Beatles singing about a hard week and to be working like a dog. So that was all for... Useless Movie Trivia. So that's the end of episode 25 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. Thanks for listening. Remember to follow, like, and share the link so others can listen. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. What's your thoughts on, on, on how to handle this? What's yours? Well, I'm of the opinion that if Marcel's lived his whole life, he doesn't need to know nothing about this incident. If 
Marcellus knew about this incident, I'd be in as much trouble as you. I seriously doubt that. I can keep a secret if you can. Shake on it. Mom's a word. Cool. Now, if you excuse me, I'm going to go home and have a heart attack. Vincent. Do you want to hear my Fox Force 5 joke? Sure. Except I think I'm still a little too petrified to laugh. No, you won't laugh because it's not funny. But if you still want to hear it, I'll tell it. I can't wait. Okay. Three tomatoes are walking down the street. Papa tomato, mama tomato, and baby tomato. Baby tomato starts lagging behind, and Papa tomato gets really angry. Goes back and squishes him. Says, ketchup. Hmm. <laughs> ketchup. See you around. <laughs>